May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. In this episode, we have with us my partner from our construction group, Lori Stanziali, who is going to talk to us about what happens when you are doing major construction and it's affecting your neighbors. How are you doing, Lori? I'm doing well. Thank you, Rich. So this is an interesting issue. It comes up. I see it in New York City all of the time, and uh, I'm sure it happens all over the world. You know, they say New York City will be a really nice place if they ever finish building it. So there's all this constant construction going on, and it's always falling onto the neighbor's property or somehow impacting the neighbor's property. And I gather it becomes an issue for legal work when you need access to the neighbor's property. Yes. This problem, of course, occurs in any metropolitan area where you're building up to the property line, which most developers or property owners uh, tend to do to maximize their square footage. Uh, But yes, when you are building above somebody, whether it's above their roof, above their yard, or somehow impacting their property in order to do your work, you do have to sometimes have access to their property for different things, and you need to protect their property. And it it should be noted that it's not only for major construction or new development. This can be if you're doing even the most simple of of facade repairs on your property. It can still impact the neighbors just through doing that. Right. And you can't just, you know, start stepping on your neighbor's building and doing what you need to do. Correct. Uh, The the building code, and, and a lot of people get a little confused with that because the building code requires you to put these protections on neighbors' properties. And some people take the position, oh, well, I'm required to do it by law, therefore I can go ahead and do it. But the requirement by law, by the building code, and it's chapter 33 of the 2014 New York City Building Code, it's what governs here, that doesn't give you the right to trespass on the neighbor's property and put these protections on. So while you're required by law to do it, you are also required by law to get the permission of the neighbor before you go on to their property. And I assume that when you get the permission of the neighbor, you want to document that in some fashion. Absolutely. I mean, there are times where my clients say, hey, look, the neighbor's being cooperative. They say not a problem, and they think everything is going to sort of go smoothly. And more often than not, that's not the case when we start you know, saying, oh, okay, well, we're coming onto the property tomorrow. Suddenly, you know, everyone wants everything documented. And it is actually best to have it documented. I always encourage my clients, if we're the ones doing the work, to document it. Because especially if you're dealing with a condo or a co-op, for instance, that the board, that, that person on the board or the president of the board who may be giving you that okay today may not be the board president tomorrow or a month from now or six months from now when you're still on the property. Right. Well, you get past the fundamental problem of having a neighbor who midway through the project says, I never said you could do that. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, you always you always want to document these. So our, our goal is to you know, reach out to these neighbors and document what we call a license agreement or an access agreement, which is going to set forth the things that we need to do to their property, what access we need, uh, the different types of protections we may need to install, the time frame that we're going to be on their property. And if there's drawings, we attach those so that it's very clear what we have the right to do. 
What kind of, when you say protections, what kind of things are you talking about? So there's a variety of things that are involved in this interaction with the neighbors. Um, the first is if you are doing major construction or excavation work or demolition, things of, of a very significant type of work, um, you are required by the code to do what's called a pre-construction survey, which is photographing the existing conditions of the neighbor's property. And this is actually important for both parties because you as the neighbor want the current conditions documented. So if there is no crack on a wall and one shows up a month after they start working or while they start working, you want to say, hey, this didn't pre-exist. And by the same reasoning, the developer wants to have that baseline condition report because if that crack did pre-exist, they don't want to be responsible for it. So that is really the first step, and that is a, a photographic survey of the property documenting both in a narrative form as well as photographs to show what the existing conditions are. So that's usually the first step. If you're doing less significant work, you know, sometimes you just photograph those portions of the property that you're impacting. If you're putting a little bit of roof protection on the roof, sometimes you just photograph the roof as opposed to every single apartment in the building. Let's assume it's a reasonably significant project, either a new construction or a major renovation. I gather you also want to put protections in place if there is some damage done to the neighbor's building. Yes. So so in addition to doing this preconditioned survey, um, there's also monitoring that's done of the property. There's various types of monitors. There's vibration monitors. There's crack monitors. And there's uh, vertical and horizontal control point monitoring, all of which measure whether the building is moving in some fashion, whether it is um, being subjected to vibrations that exceed what's permissible all of which could cause damage. So you want to be monitoring the property, which, which entails physically installing some monitors in the property or on the property and having the access to maintain and read those monitors. In addition to that, sometimes you need to support the foundation of the neighbor's property, which is one of the most controversial because it's not something that you can actually go to court and will chat about that in a minute, it's not something you can go to court and get permission for because it's permanent. All of the things you can go into court for are temporary things. So supporting the foundation may be something you need to do, and then you also may need to put these temporary protections on the property, such as roof protection, or if they have a yard, you may have to put protection over the yard. There would be a sidewalk shed that will probably have to go in front of the property. And, and on that point, which is sort of important to mention, because it's somewhat controversial, the sidewalk sheds are not really up to the, we don't really need the permission of the neighbor because they don't own the sidewalk, which they sometimes get a little confused about. Right, because it's right out in front of their building, so they think they do own it. Exactly, and, and you know, a lot of times we have to use the example, you know, if you wanted to put up a fence to block the sidewalk from in front of one side of your property to in front of the other side of your property to keep pedestrians from walking on the sidewalk and forcing them out into the street, you obviously know you wouldn't be able to do that. Therefore, you don't own that space. So you don't technically need the permission to put the sidewalk shed on the sidewalk in front of their property, but it's generally nice to talk to them about it and explain that you're doing it and explain how you're going to do it and do it in a way that hopefully doesn't block their commercial space or block their second floor windows. And in addition to the kind of protections you'll physically need for the project, your access agreement will deal with things like insurance and indemnification? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there there's always going to be insurance provided with the neighbor being uh, named as an additional insured. 
and there's going to be an indemnity in the agreement, which is, of course, going to indemnify the neighbor for any claims that uh, are brought against them as a result of the construction. And the license agreement also says that, of course, we're responsible for any damage that we cause to the property. So all of those things are encompassed in a right. traditional license agreement. Right. So the parties have negotiated. They've decided what kind of access is going to be allowed, how long, roughly, it's going to last, what kind of protections are going to be put in place what precautions in terms of insurance and indemnification are in place. I suspect that the neighbor might still want to get paid for all of this. Yes, that's probably one of the most contentious topics in negotiating these. Typically, the neighbors do certainly want to be reimbursed for their professional fees in connection with the agreement, which is usually hiring an attorney to negotiate it, as well as hiring an engineer to review the plans of the, the party who's doing the work and what they're going to put on the property. That is typical, that those reasonable costs be reimbursed. Unfortunately, there are situations where, you know, the parties disagree on what's reasonable. It really should be limited to, you know, just the getting the agreement negotiated, dealing with the drawings. Unfortunately, sometimes neighbors feel they have an open checkbook and sometimes they hire an entire staff of engineers and, and you know multiple parties who are essentially peer reviewing the project the entire time. I've had situations where neighbors have asked for more money for their engineers than my developers are paying their own engineers. So, uh, so you do have to sort of keep close tabs on, on that. The other part of it is, is whether or not the neighbor's entitled to compensation for the use of their property. And the courts are very split on that. The courts are a little bit split on the reimbursement of fees too, but on the license fees, it's very much up to the judge's discretion. All the statute, and that's the RPAPL 881, which we'll, we'll talk about, um, but all the statute says is that the neighbor's entitled to damages as a result of the access. It doesn't explain or define whether that means physical damage, which we all agree we would be responsible for. If it's loss of use, it's really not at all defined in the statute, so the judges interpret that. So it's not uncommon to ask for a license fee. And that's really what, what that number is, what that magic number is, is the question I get asked all the time. I never have a great answer because it really depends on what the property is that's being impacted. You know, if you've got a beautiful roof terrace or a garden that we're going to shed over and, you know, basically plunge into essentially darkness and make unusable for a certain period of time, there's a value to that because there really is a loss of use of the enjoyment of the property. If, however, we're putting roof protection on a plain old roof that doesn't have any amenity use and it's just the roof of the building, the neighbor's really not affected, but they still sometimes ask for money. Um, and they're still technically entitled because we are using their property, but where that number falls is pretty much tied to what the impact is. Right, and I assume occasionally you get a neighbor who is just seeking a windfall. Absolutely, especially if it's a big developer, it's a big new development. You know, they say, oh my goodness, you know, you're going to be selling apartments for $10 million each. You're going to be making so much money, so, you know, there's plenty to go around. You know, they sort of forget that there's a lot of cost that goes into building that $10 million apartment, but putting that aside. Now, you've alluded a couple of times to uh, having to go to court. So let's talk about that. In a situation where the two neighbors can't come to an agreement, which I assume happens from time to time, you might seek a judicial determination. Yes, right? yes. So, so if the neighbors can't come to a determination, an agreement, 
There is a process, RPAPL 881, Real Property Actions and Proceeding Law 881, which allows the party who is doing the work to go into court and ask for the license. And you have to basically show to the court that you need the access to the neighbor's property in order to do your work or your improvements. And there's no other way for you to do your work or your improvements without access to the neighbor's property, that you've asked for the access, and that that access has been refused. Those are the basic elements, and there is actually in the new 2014 code, not so new anymore, there is a requirement that you do reach out to the neighbor no less than 60 days prior to the request for access. And so a lot of times neighbors are now focusing on, on that element of the building code if somebody is premature and going to court. So if you're not able to come to terms, you can go into court. Uh, we usually go by order to show cause. It's a special proceeding, so it's by petition and order to show cause. And it usually consists of, in addition to the petition, uh, affidavit from not only the petitioner, but also the engineer, who is the one who has designed the protections or designed the work that is requiring us to need access to the neighbor's property. And, of course, the memorandum of law. And, and it is supposed to be a special proceeding, supposed to be on an expedited basis because we bring up by order to show cause. We do file emergency affidavits from time to time when a neighbor truly is holding up the ability to start the construction, which does happen. But of course, you know, the New York State courts being what they are, emergency is a loose term. So the first question I always get from clients is how long is this going to take and what it's going to cost me, which are also questions hard to answer. You know, I say best case scenario from, you know, the time you tell me to pull the trigger and prepare the papers until we get into court is probably, you know, a couple business days. And then once we get in front of the judge, it's somewhat of a wild card because the judges don't like to decide these. Right. Uh, well, well, you, you said New York courts being what they are. What they are is incredibly busy. Yes. With dockets that are, are way fuller than any of these judges can reasonably be expected to handle. And I would gather, and I've, I've, ha I've handled a couple of these, so I've at least touched this kind of thing, not as extensively as you have. But my experience is like a lot of disputes, what the judge really wants when you show up in court is for you and the other guy to work it out. Absolutely. I've had judges write on the order to show a cause that they strongly encourage the parties to work it out before the return date. I right. mean, that's been written into an, <laughs> the order to show cause. Uh, so yeah, they don't like to determine them. They don't like to to tell another party, I'm letting so-and-so come onto your property even though you don't want it. So they do, they do try to push the parties to resolve it, which obviously if we were able to, we wouldn't be in court. But it's a, it's a hard thing for a judge to decide what kind of access should you allow, how much should you pay for it. I mean, those are tough issues for a judge to decide. Absolutely, which is why they don't like to do it. It's also why there is such disparity between the different decisions. It's, you know, some judges feel very strongly that all fees should be reimbursed, all professional fees, because, you know, the neighbor didn't ask for this. Other judges take the position that, you know what, you've got an asset and you need to protect it, and this is a cost of doing business, and it's cost of owning property in New York City, and you, you should expect that your neighbors are going to impact you at some point. Similarly with license fees, some judges take a very strong position, you know, neighbor didn't ask for this, and, you know, you're impacting them, and they should be compensated and others say, hey, look, this is New York City. If you don't want to have neighbors, you shouldn't live in New York City. Right. Um, so it's really, <laughs> there's really a lot of disparity and they really don't want to decide.
All right, great. Well, thanks for surveying that. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice, what you do? Sure. Well, in addition to negotiating these very fun license agreements and going to court on these 881s, and I I do sit on both sides of the table. So while I have many owner developers who are doing the work, I also uh, represent many of the neighbors who are the ones impacted by the work. So in addition to doing that type of work, I really handle everything in the realm of construction from the all of the design agreements with the architects and the engineers and the contractors and dealing with issues along the way during construction whether it be breaches of the contract work that's not conforming to the to the design liens that get filed any claims between you know the owners and the contractors as well as construction defect claims and cases that may arise after. So really, soup to nuts from everything having to do with the built world in New York City, as well as other parts of the country, South Florida, and really anywhere. But my, my practice is primarily focused on the New York City area. And uh, people will keep building and you'll keep having work to do. Uh, yeah. You know, we are a finite little island and uh, and the buildings age and they will have to come down and they will have to be replaced. So that's that will never change. You know, what gets built may change, whether it's a high-end condo or a rental or affordable housing, that may change, but having to replace uh, old buildings will never change. We usually end these episodes with a closing argument, as, okay. I, as I like to call them. Uh, what, what kind of takeaways would you propose from this discussion? Well, I would say that, and, and I'll try to make it general for for all parties involved in the process, uh, I think the most important thing is to understand what the interaction between the work and the neighboring property is going to be. So if you're the developer, you really need to assess who's around you, how you're going to be impacting them, and trying to do that in the most minimal way as possible, the most minimally intrusive way as possible, because you may get neighbors who are very cooperative, and you may get neighbors that are not, and they do have the ability to impact the progress of your project. And I think if you're a neighbor, it's important to to hire the right professionals who can protect your property. And, and that should be the goal. And of course, there's nothing wrong with being compensated for the impact to your use of the property if, if that, in fact, is the case. So I think really hiring the right professionals and making sure that really there is the proper insurance. As I said before, I could talk about insurance for hours. But it's important not just to see dollar figures on a certificate of insurance, but to make sure that the insurance itself actually covers the work that's being performed. So that's really important. All right, Lori Stanziali, that's great advice. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief.